Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 7 of the podcast, in which we will discuss chapter 6 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled Into the Forest. And then we left off at the end of chapter 5 with all of the children stumbling into the wardrobe, all four of the Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, because they wish to avoid bothering Mrs. McCready, who is uh, on a tour of the professor's house with some visitors. So they stumble into the wardrobe. Lewis ends chapter five with the four of them crouched in there with the door cracked. And then we open with chapter six titled Into the Forest, where all four of the children will now visit Narnia and remain there for the remainder of the novel. And there's an interesting element of scope that we need to notice here that Lewis has done where we began the story in London, where the children are from, they evacuate London to the countryside to avoid the air raids. And then in the countryside, in the professor's house, they move into Narnia, an even more wild and exotic landscape. So we go from the city of London to the English countryside, and then to the wildlands of Narnia itself through the wardrobe, and then also in number, we have one child entering Narnia, then two, and now four. And so there's this element of increase that the novel is showing with this sequence of moving from a organized, ordered, urban environment to a larger and wilder environment in Narnia, the fantastic uh, land of Narnia. And with that same sort of sequence, we have uh, Lucy entering the wardrobe to Narnia, then Lucy and Edmund, and then now all four. So the novel is getting bigger and bigger as we go further and further, which we know that to be the truth. As we go further into the wardrobe, we are invited further up as well into the grand landscape of Narnia and the tale that is to come. This is the sort of thing that is echoed in the great statement from Jewel, the unicorn, in The Last Battle, uh, from which this podcast gets its, gets its title. When all of uh, the children, all of the creatures are beckoned further up and further in into the ultimate Narnia, uh, Doug Wilson calls it an inverse Russian doll, where the further in you get, the bigger it gets, unlike the Russian doll, where the further in you get, the smaller it gets. And so here we're going further into Narnia with all four of the children. It's interesting that in the opening series of dialogue uh, between Peter, Edmund, and Luce, and Peter, Edmund, and Susan, where they're all uh, cramped, they're all discovering that it's quite cold in there. Uh, they lean their head up against a tree. They are slowly discovering that they are no longer in a wardrobe, but in Narnia. It's interesting to see that Lucy doesn't speak in that opening sequence, that uh, Peter, Susan, and Edmund all gripe and bump into each other and exclaim their surprise at discovering Narnia. And Lucy doesn't speak. And you see there this calm satisfaction of familiarity in Lucy. She doesn't speak because she's been there. She knows what's happening and she loves what's happening. Edmund has been there, but Edmund does not want to go back. Edmund didn't like it. Edmund doesn't like his siblings, Edmund doesn't like the cold, Edmund doesn't like um, so much of what Narnia had to offer. Now, he was drawn to the White Witch in her Turkish delight, but remember, uh, once she withheld further Turkish delight, 
that's all he could think about was wanting to and and desiring to return to that craving. And remember, when he leaves Narnia, he doesn't look the same. He feels sick to his stomach. His brain is uh, is short circuiting with this addiction and this enchantment that the witch has cast upon him. And so he he is still a gripe and he's still a self-centered person. But Lucy, in her calm and in her strength, is glad to be returning. Peter says, why I do believe we've got into Lucy's wood after all, once they arrive there. I do believe we've got into Lucy's wood after all. It's a statement of belief. Remember, it was Peter and Susan that had difficulty believing Lucy. They took it to the professor where they got a first-rate education in logic about believing Lucy's story. And now they they see it for themselves. They are experiencing it for themselves. And Peter says, I do believe we've got into Lucy's wood after all. It reminds me of the psalm where uh, David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That much of what we come to believe is predicated on experience. There is a point to be had with rationality and logic and experimentation and so on. But there is much to be said as well with experiencing God, experiencing the wonder of his story, experiencing beauty firsthand that our heart's desire and our experience of God is no less important and no less valuable than our right understanding of beauty and of God. And Peter has moved to a point of belief primarily because of experience. He has been to Narnia himself and he has come to believe. He apologizes to Lucy. He says, I apologize for not believing you. I'm sorry. She forgives him. And then you get this great exchange between Peter and Susan, the older two. Susan, who is the pragmatic, practical, sensible one, who is often reluctant to uh, commit to something that seems crazy or dangerous or uh, too fantastic. Um, In a later book, when Lucy sees Aslan, uh, Susan will not believe her. Susan did not believe in Narnia in the last uh, few chapters. But now Susan is coming up with a plan. She says, and now what do we do next? And later on, Lewis will say they, they immediately carried out Susan's very sensible plan. So here's Susan with the practical advice. Let's come up with a game plan. Peter's response, he says, do, said Peter, why go and explore the wood, of course. What a great statement from Peter. This is always what we must do. Go and explore further up and further in. He says it uh, as though it's an, an already perceived certainty. Go and explore the wood, of course. We have been invited. We have stumbled into. We have discovered this grand story. What, uh, what else are we going to do? Go and explore. Go on a great journey. It's like when at the beginning of The Hobbit, when a series of dwarves descend upon Bilbo Baggins' house right in the middle of his second breakfast. Uh, And he is told of this road that he must take for this great path. And he is ushered out of his house by the dwarves. And Tolkien even says he was ushered out of his house, leaving his second breakfast half finished. That life has descended upon Bilbo. Life has descended upon Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. What else are you going to do? Go and explore. John Piper once said, if you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you get gold. 
That's why we go further up and further in, because there is gold to be had. Proverbs says it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it is the glory of kings to find it out. It is the glory of kings to discover and to unearth the glories that God has hidden in the corners of this great cosmos. Even the word unearth is packed with meaning, that to unearth, to uncover, to discover, is to find greatness And it's to unearth. It's to be completely distinct and sacred. It is not of this earth. Glory and grandeur and fairy tale and exploration and journey and royalty and nobility and greatness. These things are unearthed. They are not of this earth. They are supernatural realities. They are glories that we are invited to taste. So when Susan says, what do we do next? Peter says, well, go and explore the wood, of course. We put one foot in front of the other. That's what we do. And they go further in to this great world. Peter says this, of course, now you put it that way, I see. No one could say you had bagged a coat as long as you leave it in the wardrobe where you found it. This is in response to the suggestion that they wear the fur coats that are in the wardrobe to keep themselves warm. Peter says, of course, no one could say you'd bagged a coat as long as you leave it in the wardrobe where you found it. And I suppose this whole country is in the wardrobe. Look at Lewis playing with this sense of perspective that something as small and as seemingly mundane and trivial as a wardrobe can contain a world. That's true of us. That's true of you and me. Something as seemingly insignificant as a human being, when you consider the vastness of this universe and that we are occupying what Carl Sagan once called a pale blue dot suspended in a sunbeam, right? That we are on this pale blue dot, that earth in the vastness of the cosmos is such a seemingly insignificant dot, a rock going Mach 86 around the sun, right? Hurtling through space. And how many human beings are on that dot And yet we contain entire worlds of feeling, of memory, of passion. And we contain souls. This immortal signature of God contained in something as seemingly insignificant as a human being. Remember uh, the the fawn, Tumnus. He says, are you a daughter of Eve? Are you human? Are you something that looks small and looks frail but contains a soul? contains the image of God. Peter says, I suppose this whole country is in the wardrobe. What a powerful statement that just because something's small doesn't mean it's insignificant. Reepicheep will teach us that lesson. Even the smallest of us can be the most valiant and the most brave. It's no accident that when all four of these children are crowned at Care Paravel, Lucy's name is Queen Lucy the Valiant. And she is the smallest. It was Lucy that discovered Narnia. She was the first. That there is much to be said of God's glory working through small things. Even a hobbit can save Middle Earth. A halfling. Something so small. And this puts me uh, to remember a statement that Lucy will make in the very final book of the series. All the way in the last battle. And in probably one of the most explicitly... Christological statements in the whole series, overtly linking the details of Narnia to the story of Jesus. 
they are talking about a stable that on the outside looks rather ordinary and commonplace, but on the inside contains great worlds. Diggory says its inside is bigger than its outside. Speaking of, of the stable. And Lucy says, yes, said Queen Lucy. In our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Let me give you that again. Yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. And we know exactly what stable in our world once contained something bigger inside it. All right, the stable in which Jesus was born. What a beautiful statement of God that his plan for saving a fallen human race came in the form of a child born in a stable. Yes, small things matter because they are not small things. Small things matter because they are not small things. Nothing is trivial. Not one thing. And so all the way back in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, this passage into Narnia through a wardrobe will make all the difference because it's those four children that have to save Narnia. And it's Aslan working through those four children that there are thrones waiting for these four. Yes, they must enter Narnia. Yes, they must start small, wearing fur coats that are oversized, maneuvering this country. The next paragraph extends this whole point. They immediately carried out Susan's very sensible plan. The coats were rather too big for them so that they came down to their heels and looked more like royal robes than coats when they had put them on. Notice the foreshadowing of their destinies, that these coats looked more like royal robes than coats. There is a coronation in their future, and the foreshadowing here is unmistakable. But they all felt a good deal warmer, and each thought the others looked better in their new getup and more suitable to the landscape. They look better with royal robes on. Obviously, these are just fur coats, but they are symbols. They look better, and they are more suitable to the landscape. Devin Brown talks about that as a passage that will make more sense once they meet the beavers, when the four children in their fur coats will meet the beavers. He says, when they encounter the beavers, the animals will be human-like on the inside, and the children will appear animal-like on the outside, so that the four of them look like Narnians. They blend in. That the beavers are animals that uh, will be human-like on the inside, and the children are humans that look animal on the outside with these large, very billowy fur coats. They are beginning to discover who they are. Lucy says, we can pretend we are Arctic explorers. And Peter responds with some wisdom here. This is going to be exciting enough without pretending. This is going to be exciting enough without pretending. Going and exploring the wood, which is what he told Susan, he now tells Lucy, will be exciting enough. You won't have to pretend. Real life, mere life is interesting enough, G.K. Chesterton says. All the way back in Orthodoxy, uh, which I quoted at the very introduction of the podcast. Uh, in Orthodoxy, Chesterton is talking about the power of fairy tales. And he says, when we are very young children, we do not need fairy tales. We only need tales. Mere life is interesting enough. He's advocating for the power of story, capital S. You don't need to adorn it. You don't need to pretty it up. Life is, fast, is fascinating. It's fantastic. He says mere life is interesting enough. A child of seven 
is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon, but a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. Mere life is interesting enough, Chesterton says. And Lewis is saying it here through Peter. This is going to be exciting enough without pretending. And he leads the way into the forest. Edmund gives himself away. He tells them that they need to bear to the left so they can find the lamppost. And all of them slowly turn to notice that Edmund messed up and he gave himself away. And they call him out on it. Edmund becomes even more resentful, even more bitter. They let Lucy lead them, which is certainly interesting. Lucy led the way in discovering Narnia. Lucy uh, leads the way in believing in Narnia. And now Lucy will literally lead the way as they navigate Narnia. Lucy is the light, her name meaning light. She is the guiding light. There's already a mention of the lamppost as a marker, a guiding light, a uh, uh, symbol that would orient them on where they are. And now Lucy will guide them as well. And so she leads forward. They head to Tumnus's house. You get some parallel account here with Lucy's first visit. But when they discover Tumnus's house, it has been ransacked. Lewis says, a terrible surprise awaited them, the first of many. Edmund's treachery will be a terrible surprise that we are already clued into. We know that he has realigned his allegiances to the White Witch. But the full betrayal will be a terrible surprise to them in the chapters to come. And then Aslan and his offering on the stone table will be a terrible surprise. Something unforeseen. Nobody knew Aslan would do that. Uh, In the inside of the house, you get some interesting uh, historical um, detailing here where Tumnus' house is ransacked. And it looks an awful lot like a World War II level interrogation, investigation ransacking, raiding from the White Witch and her secret police. Uh, there's a particular detail in the ransacking of Tumnus's cave that's striking. It's mentioned that uh, furniture is flung around the room, things are smashed to bits, plates are broken, and so on. Uh, but the final detail is that the picture of the fawn's father had been slashed into shreds with a knife. That's the final thing that Lewis says about the condition of Tumnus's cave here that the picture of his father had been slashed into shreds with a knife. And there are a couple things going on there. One, this portrait of Tumnus's father had been referenced previously, where when Tumnus checks himself on betraying Lucy and turning her into the White Witch, he cites the portrait of his father hanging over the mantle as a reminder to him. He said, my father would never have done this. I, in good conscience, can't do this. And so Tumnus directly links that picture of his father with a picture of doing what is right and as a guiding light for him, a a moral compass for him of returning to the right thing to do and uh, allowing Lucy to escape. The second detail is that it has been shredded with a knife. And supposing this might link with the knife that the White Witch will use later in the assassination of Aslan is certainly an interesting uh, detail to include but also a more thematic reality of what's going on here. And that is this radical rebellion that the White Witch has, this complete distaste and disgust that she has with honor, tradition, authority, history, loyalty, all of the things that Tumnus's father and this portrait of his father might embody, this previous age 
Remember when Tumnus was hosting Lucy at his tea party, he was telling her about the nymphs and the dryads and the Christian revelry that would go on there. Of course, it's a Narnian revelry, but we know it to be a, a, a portrait of um, the community of uh, Christ that Narnia is meant to represent. And all of that is gone now because it is always winter and never Christmas. No more festivals, no more parties, no more celebrations. And so the slashed portrait of his father, I take also to be this reaction against honor and nobility itself, a reaction against the past, a reaction against history, a reaction against fatherhood. Notice that white, the white witch as this picture of sterility. She told Edmund she has no children of her own. So she's not married. She has, she's not a mother. She is this Lady Macbeth figure of absolute totalitarian power and cruelty and tyranny. And there are fathers in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, father figures who are meant to embody guidance and leadership and love and uh, honor. I'm thinking of Tumnus's father. You think of the professor as a father figure to Peter and Susan. You think of Aslan himself uh, as a father figure, a king figure. Uh, even Father Christmas will return uh, toward the end of the story. And here the white witch is lashing out against that uh, older view of community and family and lineage and history and loyalty. There's a note left signed by Maugram, captain of the secret police. Another indication to another historical indication here, this is just is a reminder of the Nazi Gestapo, uh, the secret police that went on undercover raids and, um, and this sort of um, manipulative, uh, destructive means of establishing power and order and rule. And then right after they discover this, Susan is the one who doubts if they should continue. And that would be the practical thing, that this is a dangerous place. And she says, I, I wonder if there's any point in going on, said Susan. I mean, it doesn't seem particularly safe here. And it looks as if it won't be much fun either. What a powerful statement. One, because if the others listened to her, imagine if they abandoned the call of destiny. Imagine if they turned back and went home. The white witch would continue her rule. It would continue to be always winter and never Christmas. The prophecy demands that all four of these children take the road that has been given to them to take. They have a destiny. They have a path and a journey to take. And there is a land. There is a people. There is a world that is hanging on their willingness, their bravery to assume the call that has come to them. They cannot abandon their destiny. But also consider too her point, a very practical point. It doesn't seem very safe here. No, it is not safe in Narnia. Aslan is not safe. One of the most famous lines to come out of Narnia is that Aslan is not safe. He is not a tame lion but he is good. He is the king. Aslan is not safe. Aslan is not tame. Life is not safe. Life is not tame. Narnia is a wild land filled with great darkness and great fear, but all the, all the greater the victory because of it. 
You know, Superman is not great because he leaps over a puddle in a single bound. I can do that. Superman is great because he leaps over buildings in a single bound, in a single bound faster than a locomotive. That great victory, great triumph, great glory comes at a great cost. Jesus knew this. In Hebrews, it says, for the joy that was set before, he endured the cross, suffered, despising the shame. He suffered greatly for our redemption. Lewis talks about this sense of safety and this sense of adventure in the four loves. He says this, this is from the four loves. Lewis says, I am a safety first creature of all arguments against love. None makes so strong an appeal to my nature as careful. This might lead you to suffering. Of all arguments against love, he says, none makes so strong an appeal to my nature as careful. This might lead you to suffering. This is telling from Lewis in the four loves where he says, I am a safety first creature. We all are. We like comfort and safety. We don't want to be pulled further up and further in, but we must We must go and explore the wood, as Peter says. Later in the Four Loves on safety, Lewis says this, There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Listen to Lewis. Love anything in your heart and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to keep it safe, lock it up in your chest. Never give it to anyone. Never adventure. Never go further up and further in. Never love. Not even an animal, Lewis says. He says, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. That's what you're wishing to avoid, but it will become unbreakable, calloused, numb, stone. It's no accident the white witch's curse is turning life into stone. This is what we have to avoid, turning our hearts to stone. That's what evil does. What good does is risk, sacrifice, Die to yourself. Go further up and further in. uh, Susan says, it doesn't seem particularly safe here. What about just going home? And Lucy, great Lucy says, oh, but we can't, we can't, said Lucy suddenly. Don't you see? We can't just go home. Not after this. We have to go. We have to fight. We have to defend Tumnus. We have to go further in and explore. And so they choose to go. Susan agrees, right? She's won over. She says, I think we must try to do something for the fawn. And so all four of them agree to go. As they go, they meet a robin who, although it doesn't speak to them, they discover that the robin can understand them and that the robin is leading them where they should go. 
This is the first bird that Lucy has seen in Narnia. This is the first indication we have of animals speaking in Narnia. Lewis, when he was a boy, wrote a series of stories called Boxen, where he uh, had created a world of talking animals. So there's some indication that Narnia is a carryover of that childhood fantasy of his. But it's interesting that they meet a robin. Uh, this is another point where I, Paul Ford, I believe, is the one who argues that uh, the robin here as a vision of spring is that first taste we have that the power of the witch is beginning to crack, right? Spring is coming. The winter is over. This is not just a thaw. It promises to be a real spring. But this robin beckoning them further in, further in, further in is a beautiful indication of what is to come, that the winter will not last forever. Finally, at the end of the chapter, uh, the four children are following the, following the robin and Edmund, the deceiver, pulls Peter back. And he says to Peter, we're following a guide we know nothing about. How do we know which side that bird is on? Why shouldn't it be leading us into a trap? And this is a point, Devin Brown makes this point about uh, uh, using a quote from Lord of the Rings, where he has Gandalf talking about Saruman. And Gandalf says, the treacherous are ever distrustful. The treacherous are ever distrustful. Edmund is the treasonous one, the treacherous one. And here he is being mistrusting of others. How ironic. And Peter says, it's a robin. They're good birds in all the stories I've ever read. And Peter's connecting the stories he's read before, the fairy tales he's, he's aware of, and his, pre, his current experiences. He is part of a story. And so he's relying on his understanding of story to navigate his present circumstances. What a beautiful image. And Edmund says, yes, we, we've been told the witch is bad. We've been told this is good. But how do we really know? Peter says the fawn saved Lucy. And Edmund says he says he did. But how do we know? Edmund becoming the serpent. Thank you for listening. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.